Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Wednesday, September 2nd, this is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name, you guessed it, Talia Schlanger. Now, my name is Tom Powers. It's nice to be here with you today. Holland Taylor is on the show today. And if you're not driving right now, I recommend that you pick up your phone and and, uh, look up the name Holland Taylor, because I'm going to tell you in a second when we do the introduction to the interview who she is and all that. But I think the best way I can do it is to look her up and go like, oh, yeah, because she's one of those actors that makes every movie, every TV show she's in better, but you might not know her name. And what an incredible career she's had from The Practice to Two and a Half Men uh, to the incredible show Hollywood and now to the new Bill and Ted movie, um, Illegally Blonde. And we talked a little bit about this amazing play she did down in the States. I didn't know about this called uh, Anne, about the Anne Richards, the former governor of Texas. I didn't know that much about it anyway. So in the, words of the, uh, in, in the words of my old bosses on CBC Radio, I learned something along with you. Uh, Holland Taylor on the show today. After that, Kathleen Newman-Bramang drops by to talk a little bit about the death of Chadwick Boseman um, and what it meant for her and what it meant for black folks in this country and, and around the world to be able to go to see a movie uh, where not only uh, did they have a superhero – but black people in this country and around the world had a, a bunch of different characters who were all black who they could choose a favorite character and how different that was in every other movie-going um, experience they had in terms of big Marvel movies. So Kathleen talks a little bit about the depth of grief she's feeling and a lot of people are feeling around the death of Chadwick Boseman. And then Alyssa Bereznek is on to talk. She's our uh, online columnist. She works for the website The Ringer. And she talks a little bit about the intersection of celebrity and sex work, essentially how sex workers were using this platform called OnlyFans during COVID-19 to safely make money and how that um, has now been co-opted by celebrities who are in some ways ruining the platform for sex workers right now. And then Vancouver's Sophia Chang talks about how she ended up being part of the career of the Wu-Tang Clan. All right, show starts now. I'm so glad I wrote something. I'm so sorry I can't see it. That is the actor Holland Taylor accepting an Emmy for her work on the TV series The Practice in 1999. It was her first nomination and her first win. And you got to love that. She opens up her notes and she kind of squints at it and goes, oh, no, I can't. I can't make it out. Uh, Her speech is also a nod to something a lot bigger. It's a nod to all the hard work she put in as an actor before that moment. Holland Taylor was in her 50s when she got that award. Mind you, I mean, she's had a steady career in TV and movies and on and off Broadway, but today she's been in showbiz for more than five decades. You might know her as The Professor in Legally Blonde or Evelyn Harper on the sitcom Two and a Half Men. You know, if you're not driving right now, just Google Holland Taylor. I guarantee you there's a pretty good chance by the way, what a, what a weak statement that is. I guarantee you there's a pretty good chance. Um, you'll look at her and go, oh, yeah, her. Right. Or, oh, yeah, I love her. Right now, Holland Taylor's career is having a real moment, and it's happening at a time when most actors her age are slowing down. Holland plays the great leader in the latest Bill & Ted movie, Bill & Ted Face the Music. It's out now, and Holland Taylor joined me to talk about the film and her incredible career. Were you a Bill & Ted uh, fan when it first came out? Did you go to see it? Yes. Oh, I remember it very, very well. I actually don't remember what year that was, but it's got to be 25 or 30 years old. 1989 was the year that it first came out. Absolutely. So it's, it is. It's 30-some years. And uh, I remember it because actually that kind of goofy humor appeals to me. And, and what it requires is very truthful acting. It requires very committed acting where it doesn't work. And I think that's, that's why it has had such longevity. Because, you know, Bill and Ted are in it to win it. They, they, both Alex and Keanu really are very good actors, very serious actors. And they bring their A game to this because it, a fable like this, for fun, doesn't really work unless you do bring your A game. And I was thinking the same way when I played the great leader. 
not, uh, not quite on the same level as the great Anne Richards, but you have to really be committed to playing the scenes for what the dynamic is supposed to happen in those scenes. You have to really care that you're, you know, entrusting and demanding that these young men write a song that is going to unite humanity for all time and save the universe as we know it. You have to commit to it to, to make anything that is, in fact, light and funny. I want to ask you a little bit more about that in a second. But first, let's play a clip from the film. This is you telling Bill and Ted. You are the great leader, and you're telling Bill and Ted you got to write a song in uh, 78 minutes to save the entire universe. Take a listen to this. 25 years ago, Wild Stallions played a concert at the Grand Canyon. That's true. One month ago, you played the Elks Lodge in Barstow, California for 40 people, most of whom were there only because it was $2 taco night, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, yeah. we did. That is, that is my guest, Holland Taylor, in the new movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music. I want to go back to something you said there, because I, I'm not an actor. I don't, know, I don't know too much about it, but... I love the idea that it could be a, a, a contrast or a juxtaposition that to be very, very silly, you have to be very, very serious about the silliness. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. This is true. Comedy is hard. You know, people, when you see a good comedian perform an acting role and it, 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 if, they, if you are swept along by it, they are doing a serious job of acting. Um, it, it's just... You can't throw something away. You can't be not serious about comedy. You have to find what, whatever the human thing that is going on in the scene and play it for all of its worth. You have to really invest. You know, it's, it really just takes a moment. The imagination works on a whiff. You just have to get the spirit of the thing and really ride with it, really land on it with both feet and play it for all it's worth and ride on the whiff of that, of that sensation. This is what children do all the time. You watch children play an imaginary game. They're really, they're really in it. You know, you, you've got to go there. And I think the best, uh, the best uh, comic actors are very great actors. And it's a funny world, I guess, because when, I guess when you're a stand-up comedian, you're saying jokes, and the jokes, I, I love to think about it this way, they sort of bypass the, the, the brain, they go right to the spinal column, and they make people laugh involuntarily. Same yes. way people sneeze or cough. What yes. I love about comic acting, and I'm just, this is just occurring to me while I'm talking to you, is that it's the pauses and the, the pauses and the timbre and all the things you have to use in dramatic acting are used in that case to prompt that involuntary response. Yes. yes, a lot of it is ineffable. A lot of it you can't, you can see it after you've done it. You, you know, you, you launch yourself into a situation and you know there are jokes in it and you know there's wit in it. But you, you plunge yourself into the situation as a responsive person, responding to things you see and hear. And in, that, in your, the naturalness and reality of your response within the context of the joke, uh, just sort of magic happens, and it and it is magical. Has being know? has being on stage helped you with that? Because on stage, you're able to actually hear that laugh. You're actually able to see, I, you know. Yes, I think that's what ed- actually educates you over a long period of time. I think this is why you know actors get better as they get older because the 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 you know countless, particularly if you're a stage actor. I mean, I did I did uh, and the play about amateurs. I've done it you know a couple hundred times. And the, the audience has told me when I'm telling them the truth. The audience has told me when I'm really showing who she is. I feel it from them, and that reaffirms the way I think and the way I feel about it and reaffirms what I'm doing, particularly if I stay very, very alive to it and very inspired by it myself. This is true of every kind of acting, from the most serious kitchen sink drama to the most charming bit of fluff like Bill and Ted which, you know, is about basic things. It's about, it's about family and love and devotion and loyalty and support and kindness. And, you know, it's, it's, it, these basic truths are always the subject of great stories. You said something just then. You said, you know, you become a bit of a better actor as you get older. You have more experiences. I heard a story or I read a story about you that someone actually said that to you. That like, hey, when you were younger, you're a fine actor now, but my God, you're going to be really great when you're... Now, they didn't sound like my uncle, but my God, you're going to be really great when, <laughs> when you're older. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure quite. It was actually my agent 
of the time, who was uh, Bob Lamont, who's a wonderful agent, um, gone far too soon. And uh, he's, you know, I did work. I've worked, I've had a miraculous career, actually. I've always worked. I don't have the usual, very normal actor's life of long periods of not working. I've had very good luck. But he said, you're not going to really hit your stride until you're, well, I think he said an old woman, and he was basically right. But I, I started working much more. I worked. I started really working seriously. In the past 20 years, I've never stopped. What do you, what do you account for it? I don't know. But I, I certainly would say I'm a better actor than I used to be. I think I think anybody, what is that 20,000-hour rule? Uh, yeah, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, Canadian, by the way, said that you spend 10,000 hours on, uh, of concentrated practice on something, and then you can become sort of an expert on it, and you can be great at it. I think that's true. I mean, because you're... Your whole experience is a feedback to what you're doing. And you can, some of it can be conscious. Oh, I see. When I do this, it doesn't work very well. When I do that, a lot of it is consciously perceived. But a lot of it is just osmosis, just the learning by doing and the, that ineffable feedback, even from a silent audience telling you, you know, they are, it's 1100 at Lincoln Center, it was like 1167 people dead silent with a kind of listening that was electrifying for me as a performer. So many things coming back from the audience will teach you and teach you and hone you. And you're, you know, you're like a rock in a brook. You, you get both worn down, but you're polished. polished. There, there, there's an irony there, though, that I, I find a little bit sad about how that's so true as you get better as you get older and how many women in Hollywood are not given the opportunities as they get older, you know, that's, that's something I hear about a lot from people who come on my show. Well, I think it's partly, uh, I wonder if it's different in, in Europe or in, in uh, Japan or China that in our country where youth is so important, there probably, there really are fewer and fewer roles as you get older because stories of, about women are not told except at, well, are, are not a lot told except in relationship to whatever their relationship is with the man. They're the daughter of, the wife of, the mother of, the sister of, the friend of, you know, and very few stories are told just about a woman as a, as a human being. And yes, she has a relationship or she doesn't, but it's what is her life, what is her journey as a human being. And I think it's probably we're a young country and we're sort of immature in that way, not, not recognizing that, of course, a woman is as much of a human being as, as a man and should be, you know, the separation is exists more in our country than it might in other countries, culturally. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with the American actor Holland Taylor. She stars in Bill and Ted Face the Music, and she's been speaking about her long career in film, theater, and television. Here's, a, here's something. When you're walking around the airport, back when you could walk around the airport, yeah, and they recognize you there, what most often do they recognize you for? I, you mean what role? Yeah. Well, a lot, certainly Two and a Half Men, because of its enormous popularity. I mean, you know, it was, I, I was only a regular on that show for six years. I didn't re-up after that. Then yeah. It was just sporadically, because I left to work on Anne. But that had sort of tremendous predominance. After that, I would say The Practice, which is, was an extraordinary role, uh, which really, really was groundbreaking. But this uh, judge was a very, very fine judge who had this sort of racy personal life. Uh, and again, I was in my 50s when I did that. So that was groundbreaking in a number of ways. And uh, a lot of people, when I'm in New York, I'm stopped constantly about Anne because people found that such an inspiring uh, uh, theatrical event. It was truly uplifting. And so I had people actually stop me and interrupt me to say, I have to tell you that nothing has ever meant so much to me as that. That was truly, you know, so that, and, and now, I've, I've, you know, people usually recognize me if they hear me talk. Because I don't, I don't go around looking like the characters that I play. I look like a moving pile of laundry. Now, now, I believe that as the fellow wearing four layers today, I might be the moving pile of laundry. <laughs> We've been circling around Anne. Uh, it's come up a couple of times so far, and I'm, I'm happy it has because I wanted to talk about it. And I, I just want to give a, uh, uh, um, I want to let the Canadian audience know what we're talking about here. So you wrote and starred in a one-woman show called Anne, about the life of the late uh, governor of Texas, Anne Richards. It earned you a Tony nomination for Best Leading Artist in 2013. It's now streaming online. And I can tell, and I've heard you say it, but I can tell that it was transformational, even late in your career. How so? Well, 
first of all, it came to me like a mission. And I'm not particularly a spiritual person, and I'm not open to that sort of influence particularly. Uh, when she died, she was quite young. She was just 73, and she had been, I, I, I had met her. I, mean, I knew a lot about her because she was friends of a friend of mine, a journalist. So I would hear secondhand stories about her. I just loved her, as most Americans did, right from her appearance at the, at the DNC in uh, 88, I guess it was. And I sort of followed her as governor because that, that she was governor of Texas was already just uh, impossible that she did that. And she was a wonderful governor and a wonderful leader. Very inspiring. Yeah, fill fill us in here in Canada as to why that why it was impossible that she was governor. Because it was a conservative state. It's a macho state. It's the it is huge state. It's you know bigger than France. A very powerful to be governor of Texas is really to have an enormously important position. And uh, you know a woman. And what's more, she was a Democrat. I mean, she was a divorced woman. I mean, and a former alcoholic. It, it was just incredible that she won it, and she won it. For a number of reasons, the things that worked against her, her opponent, but she mainly won it because she was a truly inspiring leader who was true blue. She was the real deal. And uh, when she died, it, it just moved me so much that I I became possessed with the idea that I had to sort of make a hologram of her, something that would carry a bit of her inspiration, which is exactly what it did do. But it was an enormous uh, effort out of my life. Uh, you know, it was seven years before it finally got to Broadway. It was a very, very enormous period of work for me, huge work that, you know, it's like going to war. It's a big, big deal. And it, you could call it a sacrifice, except it gives you more meaning for your life than anything ever had. How so? How, how did it give you more meaning? How did it give you more meaning after it was over? I was, uh, you know, I was, I was serving something larger than myself, separate from myself. That had nothing to do with me. I was serving uh, and inspiring. I was performing a service. I was serving at the governor's pleasure. I was doing something for something that had nothing to do with anything small or parochial or showbiz. I was doing something about someone great and carrying her inspiration to a multitude of people who were not aware of her, who had not been affected by it. And now they are. In addition to that service and to and to what the role meant to you. You know, when I hear you talk about Ann Richards, again, the former Democratic governor of Texas, you talk using two words quite often, uh, positivity and progressivism, and how those two are linked. Now, I just want to know in this moment, as uh, Canadians and Americans face a lot of bleakness in our news, and a lot of darkness in our time, have you learned anything from playing this relentlessly optimistic, positive Tough as nails, progressive governor. Um, that helps you look at the world. The tough as nails part is critical. She was a very brilliant woman. She had a very big brain. She fought like a general. She took the long view. And you know, when she tell that joke that Mao Zedong was once asked what he thought of the French Revolution, and he said it's too soon to tell. I mean, she she took a very long view of life, and she believed that that society, man as a being and society as a whole is progressing. And it might seem that the ball is rolling backwards as it turns, but it is in fact ultimately inching forwards. And she did what she could to help the forward motion of society to a more equitable structure. And she believed that everyone could govern and, she, and, and, and everyone should govern. There's no body of people that should not be leaders. And she opened her government up to uh, a very um, a very broad, culturally and racially diverse government uh, when she was governor. And she did so very strikingly. And so, you know, I, I am of my nature melancholy and pessimistic and uh, kind of scattered, and I can be quite fearful. Now I constantly have to resummon myself. And I, you know, I do take, leadership from Anne. I do believe that we are moving forward. This is a very, very dark time. And we, you know, there's a, there's a documentary coming out called, called Unfit, which will be out in, I think it comes out the first, a very important documentary. I've seen, I had a screening of it. And it is a serious health professionals and uh, pundits of real note. Uh, people have some real authority. Bill Crystal, of course, is a, a conservative 
talking about how the, the current president is not fit to not fit to leave. And um, however, he is a master brander, and in this time, he has branded the election already has been branded as fraudulent. The post office has already been actively damaged, and its reputation has been damaged. The most loved and respected. Uh, aspect of our government is the post office, and it has been besmirched by this president and damaged in its functionality. And so the, the, the election has been pre-damaged, the post office has been wounded, and uh, so this election is a terrifying, frankly, a terrifying time. And uh, I think Anne, because of her nature, would simply have a lot of positive things to, actions to take to try and deal with that reality. And I have to drag myself out of the emotionality of it to think the same way. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Lauren. I enjoyed it very much. Holland Taylor stars in Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's out digitally and in some theaters now. Here's a story we're keeping a close eye on for you. The Venice Film Festival kicks off today, and it's making history. Not for the films, or not for the screenings, not for the awards that it's handing out, but because the Venice Film Festival is the first major film festival to hold an in-person event during the coronavirus pandemic. And it comes at a time when most European countries are experiencing an increase in cases of COVID-19 after lockdown restrictions were lifted earlier this summer. The Venice Film Festival won't look and feel the same as before, of course. Everyone will have to wear a mask. There are socially distanced screenings and temperature scanners. And due to travel restrictions, there won't be many stars uh, at the festival. But organizers say the event must go on. And they're billing it as a symbol of hope for an industry struggling to recover from the effects of COVID-19. Pedro, Al- excuse me, Pedro Almodobar will premiere his first English language film, The Human Voice. Kate Blanchett heads the main jury and the actor Tilda Swinton will take home the festival's Golden Lion Lifetime Achievement Award. The Venice Film Festival runs through September 12th. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Hollywood and a lot of the world beyond it is mourning a painful and shocking loss. Chadwick Boseman, the groundbreaking superhero from the movie Black Panther, died of colon cancer on Friday. He was 43 years old. And uh, it was such a surprise uh, to everybody when that news alert came in on your phone on Friday night. And uh, earlier in the week, you might have heard Clark Peters on the show talking to Talia Schlanger. He's an actor who just finished filming a movie with Chadwick, Five Bloods. And he stopped by Q to share a bit of what it was like to know Chadwick personally. But today you're going to hear from another perspective, um, a group of people Chadwick also spoke so fondly of, which were his fans. Kathleen newman Brumang is a regular screen panelist here on Q. She's a senior writer for Refinery29 Canada. As I mentioned, she wrote a really beautiful piece about Chadwick over the weekend. And I thought we'd get around to talk a little bit about it. She joins me now from Toronto. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Tom. Uh, Hi. N- nice, to, nice to have you on again. I, I've, oh. been, I've been kind of talking about this throughout the show today, but you write really beautifully about when you first went to see Black Panther. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get emotional thinking back on that experience. I just remember waiting outside the theater for my brother 
one time I saw it and, and just watching more black people than I'd, I'd ever seen at this particular theater in Toronto, you know, wearing kente cloth and dressed up to the nines, like they were dressed for royalty, for church. And and then there were the kids, you know, kids dressed up as T'Challa and Shuri and Okoye, these characters from the film. It was just so special. And I thought back to myself as a kid, as little Kathleen, who grew up loving comic books and didn't get to see herself. This movie, it was ours. And we didn't have to search for something to find ourselves in in one token character. You know, if you weren't a T'Challa, you could be M'Baku, you could be Nakia or Queen Ramonda. And, you know, we had finally had full human beings to choose from, to root for. This wasn't Black people told through a white lens. Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa, he's African and how he moves, talks, carries himself. His love interest is a dark-skinned Black woman. That was the first time I'd seen that. So, yeah, being in that theater, you know, taking all of that in, and I loved hearing the roar of the crowd during big action sequences, the gas the oohs, the ahs, you know, and I know it might sound excessive to say it was church, but it, it truly felt spiritual. How many times did you go to see it? Um, eight times in theaters. <laughs> eight, eight times in theaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to... Uh, you know, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I mean, I had to take different groups of friends. I had to take my dad, <laughs> who was from Ghana, and he was just in awe. And, you know, the critics of Black Panther talk about how the accents are kind of wonky, and they are. I'll give them that. But my dad heard himself on screen for the first time. You know, it, it, I kind of became addicted to to the feeling of watching it in theaters. I want to I want to read something really powerful from your article. Uh, you wrote about Chadwick Boseman. You wrote, he did not approach fame like an irritating distraction from his craft or treat his Marvel role as a stepping stone to more meaningful work. He carried the weight of Black Panther's importance and what it meant for representation in Hollywood as a badge of honor instead of a burden. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think he took it on as a responsibility and he really treated it with the reverence of a great responsibility. And I think actors usually shy away from that kind of pressure. You know, for a long time, superhero movies were looked down upon because they were just for kids and and real actors, you know, Academy Award caliber actors didn't do superhero movies. And of course, the industry as a whole has shifted, but we're still hearing that from actors. You know, I mentioned some in the piece, like Chris Evans seemed overplaying Captain America by the end there, or Adam Driver, who seems like he wants nothing to do with Star Wars now. We still see actors shy away from the celebrity part of it or the ambassadorship of being a superhero. And Chadwick Boseman never did that. He really loved being our hero, uh, the first Black Marvel superhero, And he spoke of the importance of representation every chance he could. And he answered questions about Black Panther in interviews about other movies, which, you know, Tom, you and I know from interviewing celebrities, that that is rare. You know, he showed up for his fans and and for the culture over and over again. It was really a a joy to be his fan. And tell me why your grief or or the grief around Chadwick Boseman's death is so deep. Oh, I mean... I think it's because his work was very intentional. You know, he talked about purpose a lot and, and he took on roles that told black stories and he told them with purpose, you know, from Jackie Robinson in 42, James Brown and get on up Thurgood Marshall and Marshall. He played real life black heroes. And, and then of course the fictional one in black Panther. So, you know, I, I get it. I understand if it feels weird to some people that we're mourning someone we've never met or who we didn't know well. But when you live and breathe pop culture like I do, and when you're starving for positive representations of Blackness on screen, there are certain Black celebrities who feel like family. And Chadwick felt like that. He gave so much in such a short amount of time, and he had this like dignified, large presence, but he also had a warmth. And I've been watching videos of his, of his laugh. <laughs> he had this generous laugh. And and truly, even as a fan, um, I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss him. Yeah, and and you, and you talk about how you know even, you know, in, in the middle of this reckoning with police brutality, with anti-black racism, um, it it only adds to the grief, right? Hmm. Yeah, it, it does. Um, I think it's an understatement to say that it's been a hard few months. 
you know, black people have been fighting against police brutality and anti-black racism for a long time. But the past few months have been particularly draining, I'll say. (laughs) You know, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's been frustrating to repeatedly have to explain our humanity to the world, to our government, to our workplaces, to tell them that systemic racism exists and that our lives matter. And, you know, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote something recently that I've been thinking of a lot. And he said, to plunder people of everything, you must plunder their humanity first. And what Chadwick Boseman did was make sure the humanity of Black people was on display in every character he played. Um, and, and, you know, to quote Coates again, who they actually went to mm-hmm. Howard together. So they were, they were fr- friends. Yeah, they were friends. They were friends. And he said what Chadwick did was communicate Black humanity through Black heroism. And that, you know, kind of hit me in the gut because right now when we're fighting for people to see us, to know that Chadwick made us feel seen and to know that that talent is gone, it's, um, it's a loss that is immeasurable. You know, it, we needed him. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kathleen Newman-Bermang. She's a writer for Refinery29. She's uh, 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 often on the show talking about film and talking about television. Today we're talking a little bit about the death of Chadwick Boseman in an article she wrote for Refinery29 about the death of Chadwick Boseman. And there's something in there. You used the word generosity earlier, and I, I want to pick up on that because it it there, there was this feeling um, online for a while that he wasn't that excited about being um, – being part of Black Panther. And the reason that there was this kind of feeling online for a while is because you talk about the Wakanda salute, which is um, you know part of Black Panther, something that has become a sort of a symbol for Black pride. You cross your arms in the form of an X across your chest. And mm-hmm. you mentioned how people were joking about the tired look on Chadwick Boseman's face when he did the salute for fans sometimes. And I remember people saying, oh, does he even want to do this? Is he even excited mm-hmm. about doing Black Panther? And you know, why was that important for you to point out? Oh, I mean, it was so important because we're talking about his legacy here. And I think the Wakanda salute is definitely a part of that. And like you said, it's a big symbol of, of Black pride in the film and that, you know, permeated into the culture. But Chadwick's face becoming this, this tired meme, this example of exasperation, never sat right with me because I could tell that, you know, maybe he didn't love doing it on cue for white people who didn't care about its symbolism, but he, he did love doing it with his fans. And he said this multiple times or with black people who found meaning in it, you know, it's derived from the way pharaohs were laid to rest. The director Ryan Coogler said that. So it is this like sacred thing. So even back then I knew it was a misrepresentation to say that he hated it. And now in hindsight, knowing what we know, it makes me sad that people were laughing at what could have been exhaustion due to his illness. But, you know, the most important thing for me was just to convey that he really did like being Black Panther. And I don't think there was anything about it that annoyed him. He really did love being a hero, a king. And the Wakanda salute, I think, is a really big part of that. I can't stop thinking about it, to be honest. I can't stop thinking about mm. all the things I saw him in since Black Panther um, and all, you know, the photos online and, and the, you know, the interviews and whatever, and just, you know, what he was going through that none of us had any idea. To be honest, I haven't been able to get that out of my mind, you know? Mm, same. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. And, and again, I think it goes back to what I keep saying that he loved playing this character and he loved telling black stories. I think that he did, he did all of this clearly selflessly. Because uh, if he was thinking about himself, I think he probably would have worked less. I, I, I want to play one more clip. Take a listen to this. My name's Kwabana Bo'ofe. I absolutely loved this movie. You guys killed it. But on a personal note, my father is African. He's from Ghana. He's a scientist. My mother, my sisters, brilliant African-American women. So basically everything that represents me was honored in this movie. I've seen the movie twice in theaters already and once on bootleg. <laughs> it was incredible. Thank you. Wait, you go bootleg while moving? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Kwab Nabo, And you got my whole name right. <laughs> K- Kathleen, you, 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 you described that moment that that's um, uh, Chadwick Boseman and Jimmy Fallon um, 
you describe it beautifully as him getting the flowers while he was living. I wonder if you could tell us what we mm-hmm. heard just then and, and what it means to you. Yeah, I mean, that, that clip gets me every time. I mentioned that my, my dad is from Ghana, so Babana, the man in that clip, is is really um, speaking to me there. But, you know, um, Chadwick and Jimmy Fallon, they did this segment where fans of Black Panther were told to speak into the camera and say what Chadwick Boseman and Black Panther meant to them. They did not know he was going to be there. So when he pops out, those reactions, they're incredible. And it and it makes me emotional. I mean, I'm, I'm just a mess over here. I keep saying things make me emotional. But, you know, yeah, like you said, we always talk about not giving people their flowers while they're alive. And, and you know, we say specifically about Black life that we only celebrate it in death or when names become hashtags. And I love this clip because it makes me feel like he really knew how much he meant to people. You know, it's basically five minutes of people giving him his flowers while he was alive. And uh, that makes me really happy. I, I, I hope he knew what he meant to people. And, and, and on the other side of that, you see the sadness, you know. Um, Michael B. Jordan, who played Killmonger in Black Panther, you know, sort of co-starred alongside him in the film. You know, we, we didn't get a response from him right away. And then a couple of days passed and then he put out a response and, and it was it was quite moving, right? Yeah, uh, Michael B. Jordan really felt like a love letter to Chadwick, um, who was like an older brother to him. And in it, he repeats the sentence, I wish we had more time, which is, I think, what we all feel. And, you know, all of the tributes are are beautiful, but and incredibly hard to read. Um, But the ones that have been impacting me the most are the ones from his Black Panther family and uh, Ryan Coogler, the director, uh, he was working on the sequel with Chadwick in mind, and the one he wrote was was just gutting. And he wrote about their bond, about Chadwick's talent, and again, the word generosity, um, how he would show up to the auditions of supporting characters when, you know, the lead never usually did that. And um, Ryan Coogler ended his piece beautifully. He wrote, in African cultures, we often refer to loved ones that have passed as ancestors. Sometimes you're genetically related, sometimes you're not. And so then he goes on to say, it is with a heavy heart and a sense of deep gratitude to have ever been in his presence that I have to reckon with the fact that Chad is an ancestor now. And it honestly, it's surreal having this conversation with you. It's surreal reading those words out loud. Uh, Because, yeah, there won't be, um, we won't get to see that talent on screen um, in the future, uh, other than going back to his work. And so I hope that everybody gets to do that, to go back through through the incredible work that he gave us. We've got, we got about 40 seconds left. Can you give us the name of one film other than Black Panther that, I mean, obviously people should watch Black Panther, but if they haven't, uh, if they've already seen that one film, which Chad, Chadwick Boseman, that they should check out tonight. Oh, I mean, okay, I'm going to go with Get On Up because the movie maybe is not my favorite, but his performance, in it as James Brown, it just is really um, a testament to Chadwick could embody characters that maybe he didn't look like that much, <laughs> but he had the essence. He had the eyes. He had um, the skill to play these heroes. Um, and it's, it's astonishing. So yeah, but I mean, 42, Marshall as well, The Five Bloods, like they're all available to stream. Really watch them all. I mean, what a what a powerful a piece you wrote about Chadwick Boseman. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about us today. And, and you know, I think... Thank you so much for having me. I, I think that, you know, I wish we had more time is something we feel so deeply when anyone, you know, anyone who's listening to this has experienced any kind of loss. And you certainly feel mm-hmm. it right now with him and his work. Thank you so much, Kathleen, mm-hmm. and, and take care. Thank you. Kathleen Newman Bermang is a writer for Refinery29. She joined me from her home in Toronto. We'll post up a... Yeah, we'll post up that link to Kathleen's article on our Twitter at CBCQ. My name is Tom Power. The pandemic has probably dramatically changed a lot of your life. The way you work, the way you celebrate milestones, the nature of work, the way you earn a living. For a lot of people, the pandemic has meant finding new ways to support themselves, like sex workers who are turning more and more to an online subscription service called OnlyFans 
as a way to safely make money. Users of the service pay a monthly fee to get access to photos and videos and live streams. They also pay extra to see exclusive content and to tip the creators. But now more and more celebrities have joined OnlyFans as well, and some are claiming they've earned as much as $2 million in one week. Alyssa Bereznak is here to talk about this and so much more. She's a tech and culture writer for the website The Ringer. She drops by every now and then to talk about what's happening online. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? Hey, can you hear me? I sure can. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, how are you? I'm not too bad. I'm I'm, I'm holding on here anyway. How's everything uh, in the States? Oh, you know, uh, summer becomes fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about that's about all that's going on. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about how OnlyFans works. Uh, so OnlyFans launched in 2016, and it never really uh, launched with the idea of sex sex workers in mind. But it ended up becoming uh, a, a great platform for them, just because they're are a lot of protections in terms of privacy and copyright violations um, because uh, fans can subscribe and pay a monthly fee to a specific creator's feed. Um, there's a consistent income coming in. And then the, on top of that, the pay-per-view that you had mentioned to see a specific exclusive video or an exclusive photo allows creators to make even more money for extra exclusive content. Now, you can imagine that working for like a musician who's giving tutorials or um, a, a fitness instructor who, you know, posts a full video of how to get rock hard abs. But it can also work if you um, are a sex worker and want to create a semblance of intimacy with your clients while also um, making a good amount of money. And of course, there's tips, which is uh, crucial in sex work and uh, also crucial on OnlyFans. Now, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, tell me a little bit more about how people make money here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that usually there's, uh, depending on who you are on the platform, if you're a sex worker, you have a consistent feed um, that maintains whatever your personal brand is. And and maybe those are risky photos that those aren't necessarily risque. Um, <laughs> maybe they're not necessarily nudes or um, explicit photos, but that's how you draw fans in. And then on top of that, uh, the more private photos, the the ones that show more explicit sex acts are on that pay-per-view scale. And if a, um, one of your followers just is really enjoying your content, then they can tip you um, if they really enjoyed an exclusive video. And you said there's, there's copyright protection here. Like what's to stop someone from taking a photo from OnlyFans and publishing it somewhere else online? So if you try to uh, take a photo, like a screenshot on OnlyFans, you just get a blank screen. That's built into the structure of the app. But also, um, since uh, exclusivity is crucial to the OnlyFans business model, uh, they take redistribution and privacy very seriously. So if a user um, posts something online, say they take a photo of it with a separate camera, uh, there's a team of of people designated to seek out copyright violations and issue formal takedown notices at OnlyFans. So the reason we're talking about this is because celebrities like Cardi B and in particular the actor Bella Thorne uh, both joined OnlyFans. I mean, a lot of celebrities did, but but Bella Thorne seems to be getting the most attention on this. What's the controversy here? Why are people upset? So sex workers have definitely done a lot to help the platform grow. And um, for many, it's become a main source of income. But with this new influx of more mainstream celebrities, that's more competition for eyeballs on the app. And separately, such high profile celebrities joining um, an already sexually charged environment has forced a lot of users to adjust their expectations and OnlyFans to adjust some of its policies. So um, with Bella Thorne, uh, she joined the app last week. She teased a pay-per-view photo that many subscribers thought would be nude but wasn't. And she ended up making a whopping $2 million on OnlyFans in just a week. But a lot of fans felt she'd falsely advertise what she would be posting. And not long after that, OnlyFans changed its rules. It limited tips to $100 and the cost of a pay-per-view photo or video to $50. It also said it would pay creators each month rather than each week, which, you know, if you're living month to month, that's that requires a lot more budgeting. To tell me more about how these changes in restricting the amount of money that someone can spend on OnlyFans and, and how often someone will get paid, how that affects sex workers. 
I think in the long run, it, it makes sense for the platform, but for sex workers, um, the, it's all about desire. It's all about that immediate, uh, how much do I want to see this nude photo? And uh, I mean, I think everyone knows that intimacy can get people acting impulsively and that's helpful for a sex worker sometimes. So uh, I think OnlyFans making these new rules to sort of protect people from being, um, quote unquote, scammed into paying money for um, photos that aren't actually news. And, 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 and by celebrities, you know, this, this, it wasn't sex workers necessarily doing this. It was celebrities doing this. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Bella Thorne is not a sex worker. And I think sex workers feel a little bit cheated because they were the people who built this community. And now they're being punished for something that a celebrity is doing. And she claimed it was just for research. She wasn't actually interested in getting into sex work. If you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. Alyssa Bereznak is here. She drops by every now and then to talk about what's happening online. She writes for the website, The Ringer. We don't got a lot of time left, but I want to get to this, you know, as uh, our, our country and your country are both dealing with uh, COVID-19. Uh, we spoke about TikTok before and the responsibility of social platforms to, at a time like this, to be, well, I guess, responsible, uh, responsible in how they talk about the coronavirus and, and responsible in how they talk about safety. Okay, we've spoken about the Gen Z world of TikTok celebrities on the show before. They make a huge amount of money posting short videos on the app. A lot of these kids are often pretty young, like Bryce Hall and Blake Gray. They were charged last Friday in LA for something to do with COVID-19. What happened? Yeah, so most successful TikTokers usually end up living in LA with other famous TikTokers in giant mansions. Uh, both Bryce Hall and Blake Gray are members of the Sway House, which is located in Bel Air. And Hall recently had a huge party for his 21st birthday, which a lot of other big influencers attended and documented on social media quite flagrantly. No masks were worn. <laughs> and then not long after that, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti cut off the utilities to their house. And then last week, the city announced charges against Hall and Gray, one misdemeanor count for public nuisance and another for violating a lawful directive during a local emergency. Um, so, yes, they were basically charged for partying too hard. Do you think that massive video sharing platforms like YouTube and, and TikTok have a responsibility here to prepare, to better prepare young creators for everything that comes with all this money and all this fame and all this social responsibility? Or, or, or is that not even possible? Because it's starting to feel... Uh, at least as an observer, that like TikTok stars seem to be the seem to be not caring as much about public safety and about wearing masks. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think that these platforms definitely need to try. <laughs> um, currently, the two platforms, you know, TikTok or YouTube, they both highlight the work of creators who are setting a good example when they can. And YouTube separately offers a whole video course for creators on how to how to follow its community guidelines. But I think both platforms have to take a more active role in reaching out to and educating creators as they get bigger. I mean, maybe offering more hands-on education once a creator hits the 1 million follower account. It seems like the higher the reach, the, the higher priority that should be. That being said, Bryce Hall is 21. He quite literally sells merchandise with the words party animal on it. So I can't think of a better way to bolster his brand as a, a young rebel. Um, and, uh, and that's just part of being a young person on social media, I think. Uh, Alyssa, stay safe down there. Thank you so much. Alyssa Bresnek is a tech and culture writer for The Ringer. She drops by every now and then to talk about what's happening online. If you were hanging around Ottawa in the early days of the pandemic, you might have noticed people wearing these distinctive T-shirts, the yellow and black W logo of the Wu-Tang Clan. But instead of Wu-Tang in the middle, it's been altered to say Ottawa. The Wu-Tang Clan was selling these shirts along with hand sanitizer and meals to raise money for Ottawa food banks. If you don't know Wu-Tang Clan or their music, they, they've got a really amazing story. They started in the housing projects of Staten Island. They ended up dominating 90s hip-hop. If you've dug into their history, you might have met a surprising figure. Sophia Chang is this woman in her 50s. She's got a shaved head. She's got designer clothes, a super quick wit. She worked Wu-Tang on a bunch of projects. She managed some of the members. And she tells the whole story in her new memoir that's out next week called, and I believe I'm allowed to say this on the radio because it's the title, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. But the moment Sophia discovered hip-hop, she was a kid growing up in suburban Vancouver. It was lunch hour. She was playing records in the music room with her friends. And the needle dropped on this song. 
broken glass everywhere. People on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in, in the, the back. back. Junkies in the alley with, with a baseball bat. <laughs> That's the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Sophia Chang, what happens inside you when you hear that for the first time? I have two responses. One is visceral. Um, I've been dancing like a clown <laughs> since I was three. I love dancing. And so the beat, the bottom of that hit me in the solar plexus and I just started to move involuntarily. So that's kind of what my visceral response. Then there was my heart, which just opened up so widely uh, to the emotion that was being communicated in that song and just how raw it was. Talk to me a little bit about the kid you were at the time. You're the first person in your family to be born outside of Korea. You're, you're growing up in suburban Vancouver. Paint me a picture of young Sophia Chang. Um, I was always small and scrawny. I was always very, very confident. My mother told me that I was always very self-assured. That said, I was still a yellow girl in a white world. But I was also super popular. You know, I understood, Tom, that being marginalized, although that wasn't the word I used, obviously, was, you know, so how do I compensate for that? Well, I'm going to be the smartest. I'm going to be teacher's pet. I'm going to be the most popular. I'm going to be the best dressed. I, you know, I'm elected social coordinator two years in a row. I was probably really annoying, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> And, and I think a big part of all of that came from moments like this. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sire MCs should call me sire. To burn my kingdom, you must choose fire. I won't stop rock until I retire. Now we rock dog party and come correct. All cuts are on time and rhymes connect. Got the right to vote and we'll elect. And other rappers can't stand us, but give us respect. And all the rappers can't stand us, but give us respect. Give us respect. That's Run DMC with the big breakthrough hit King of Rock from 85. I, I can tell that, that that did something to you, right? Absolutely. I mean, when you hear that, don't you see it? For me, it's I have a very, again, a visceral, but also a very visual response to that as, a, as uh, in, in addition to oral, right, through my ears. Um, I was, at the time, I was dating a guitar player a really talented rock guitar player, and we were in the basement watching Much Music, and that video came on, and I remember just going, what the heck is this? <laughs> the defiance and the pride and claiming identity and the kind of the chest pounding and the arms crossed high across, you know, their chests and their, you know, their legs wide apart. I mean, I still stand like that. I probably just did that at the gym half an hour ago before I got here. So here I am seeing the expression, the powerful expression, artistic expression of artists who have also been marginalized. I want to jump forward a little bit. I mean, I want to jump forward a fair bit, actually, to, sure. to New York City. You go down to visit some friends. And you have a bit of a fairy tale dream meeting with a pretty legendary figure. <laughs> he ends up changing your life. Take a listen. Ah, the guitars. Here we go. The Ramones of Blitzkrieg Bop. You met the band's lead singer, Joey Ramones. You struck up a friendship. You talk about how we put you in touch with people in New York who helped launch your career. I'm, I'm curious, though, outside of all that, what's it like to just hang out with Joey Ramone? Funny. Yeah? Joey was, Joey was so funny, rest his soul. He was really low-key and attentive. You know, when I spoke, he would just stare at me over his wire-framed pink or blue tinted glasses, mm. and I really felt like he was paying attention to what I was saying. Um, I found him to be really sensitive and really, really funny, and more importantly, thought I was funny. <laughs> <laughs> always helps. Always helps. <laughs> Wait, you think I'm funny? You're my best friend. Yeah, I get you. I get you. I I, I understand because because yeah, we see this side of Joey Ramona. We see him on stage and we see him in videos and stuff like that. It's nice to nice to hear what the what the guy was like, you know. Yeah, I think that's one of been that's been one of the profound privileges um, of working with artists. Tom is seeing 
the person behind the art. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. Sophia Chang's new audiobook is called The Baddest Bitch in the Room. So the whole time this is going on, you're becoming deeply involved in hip-hop and in the hip-hop community. You start working with rappers. We're, we're, we're going to have to beep this on the radio, but this is how you put it in the audiobook. As a petite Asian woman, I never had the luxury to simply lean in. I had to kick down the... Mother door. <laughs> <laughs> the mother door. <laughs> I don't even know if we can keep mother in there, but we're going <laughs> to... I had to kick down the gosh darn door, oh, Tom. Oh, there you go. Thank you for... But you, know, but you did. You really did, hey? I did. I, I, did. I, I want to play you a song from around this time in your life. So this is Red Man. <sighs> You might you might hear when you're listening to this at home a few lines in Korean. Watch me freak it in Korean. With the flying human being, watch me freak it in Korean. Sharika Pigara Mulagara. New Guna Nara Nana New Redman. Sabotad Charles Lake. That is That's Redman doing his best at rapping in Korean in the song Blow Your Mind, which came from you and your dad, right? It came from my dad. I can't claim any of that. Uh, like many first gen, uh, first gen immigrants, I lost my language. It was Korean was actually my maternal tongue, and in my desperate um, desire to assimilate, I lost my tongue. So, Redman, Regman, as I call him, his name is Reggie Noble. So I kind of conflated the two. Regman was at my place one night. He used to hang out at my place all the time to the point where he actually had keys. He said, "You know, Sophie, check it out. I want to have some Korean." In my first single, Blow Your Mind, and that blew my mind. And I, and I am certain that that was because of our friendship and my influence. Not that I told him to do it. He completely came up with that on his own. That's his creative genius. But certainly the proximity to me was so touching because he wanted it to be authentic. You know, it's kind of hard to talk about your career without talking about the group that kind of changed the world of hip-hop. Take a listen that is Protect Your Neck, the Wu-Tang Clan track that really introduced them to so much of the world. You were embraced by Wu-Tang Clan pretty much from the get-go. You work with them in many ways over the years. You know, you talk a lot about what you saw in them in this book. But I wanted to ask, like, what do you think they saw in you? What made them put their trust in you? That is a really astute question, Tom. You know, they just knew, you know, these guys grew up, they grew up on the streets, you know, like Ray would say, they grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. And one thing I will say about them and about many other artists that had similar upbringings, their instincts when it comes to people are very, very finely honed. Mm. (laughs) Because growing up the way that they did, their judgments... And being able to judge somebody on the spot could literally be a matter of life and death. So I would like to think that they had very good instincts about people and that they read me really clearly as somebody who was, of course, a fan, but there are plenty of those, but also somebody who just loved them to death as people. Yeah, and and you see that. Like you see – what you were, you know, what obviously they meant to you and what you were able to do for them. But what was really amazing to me was to, was to see what they were able to do for you in a bunch of different ways. Like part of the whole Wu-Tang Clan mythology is their obsession with with, with kung, kung fu movies. Yeah. And and as an Asian Canadian woman, do you feel like these, these guys, these African-American dudes opened you up to appreciating your own culture, Asian culture in a different way? Totally, totally. I mean, I grew up wanting to be white. Yeah. I'm 54. I was born in 1965. I was in... here they call it lower school, middle school. I was in elementary school in the mid-70s. So all I see is whiteness. All that's celebrated is whiteness, right? I'm watching the Brady Bunch. I'm watching um, Partridge Family. I'm looking at Vogue magazine because I want to be a designer. And all I see is whiteness. And then – and so, again, this is very common for first-gen immigrants. I also – so I repress my culture. Um, and I, I'm, I'm deni- I'm in denial about it, and I reject it. And then to meet these guys who were essentially saying to the world, not just Sophia Chang, but to the world, we are calling ourselves the Wu Tang Clan after Wu Tang Mountain, which is a real mountain in Hebei Province in China, where Tai Chi was founded. Right? Mm. We call 
our borough, Staten Island. We call it Shaolin after the, you know, the mecca of martial arts, Shaolin Temple, that was founded just over 1,500 years ago. And so I took this very circuitous route, Tom, back to myself through Wu-Tang, and that's a gift. Sophia Chang, thank you so much for your time today. Tom Power and Q, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. That was my conversation with Sophia Chang. Her new memoir will be out this week. Next week, I should say. It's called The Baddest Bitch in the Room. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Ang Lee will be on uh, talking about this movie that he had an idea to make, but he needed to wait. This is interesting. He had to wait for the technology to get good enough that he could make the movie. I'll tell you about it. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.